Welcome to ProductWise Podcast. This is your host, Alexandra Dinella, and my special guest today is Kelly McDonald. Kelly is the co-founder and chief product officer of CPO, the world's first community influencer marketing platform. Prior to joining CPO, Kelly was the founder and CEO of Kindu, a data platform for social commerce that was acquired by CPO in September 2021. Prior to founding Kindu, Kelly was the Senior Vice President of Revenue, Operations and People at Realty Shares. An entrepreneur at heart, Kelly loves working on big problems at the earliest stages of the company. She is driven by her passion for the people she leads and the journey towards the greater vision they share. Today, we're going to talk about building products from scratch, the importance of talking to customers before you build, and building the diverse teams. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So last year you've had a big event. So the acquisition of Kindu, could you walk me through how Kindu started and grew in a bit more about the, the acquisition itself? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, so I started Kindu almost four years ago. This coming month, actually, will be four years. Um, and it really started from like a lot of founders, I think, trying to solve my own problem. Um, so at the time, I was trying to hire uh, influencers myself for a commercial real estate crowdfunding platform that I was an executive at. And we were looking at folks and I just asked a really simple question, which was, how do I know they're real and not just buying their followers, right? Um, and the marketing team said, you know, this is much more of a spray and pray method. Um, but I had a really deep background in data in terms of um, understanding like the locations and just how much data there was at the zip code level um, and even like the walk sequence level um, out here in the world. And to me, it just seemed like social media was an unstructured data problem um, that mm -hmm. perhaps I could solve. So it was kind of like a light bulb. I gave my notice two weeks later and started Kindu over the course of a few months. Like I stayed on at the company a few months, but I, you know, launched into it. Um, and within three months, we had our first revenue and we're off to the races. Um, it was a pretty wild ride over the three years that we did it, you know, there. I spent the first year as a solo founder, um, got into 500 startups, which is now 500 global, and immediately took that opportunity to find a world-class co-founder. Uh, so I was lucky enough to bring in uh, my co-founder, Jin Yu. And, you know, he had a really deep background in the social local mobile space. So he really understood, you know, exactly the the idea of like the data around people and location was really important and the real factor. Mm -hmm. um, and so we actually uh, recruited someone from his previous team that had helped him build that product years before. And, you know, within a few months, we were at, you know, almost like 80 million people in our user profile store. Um, which ended up long-term being one of our most valuable assets, you know, to us was having that, that database, which is why we built that first and foremost. Um, we are, we're very unique in the space that we really went after real data and actually vetting influencers by their audience and their engagement level. And we had developed a proprietary scoring model called mm -hmm. the, the Kindex. Um, at some point we decided that we could white label our tool to some other companies that were in adjacent places in the marketing space. Um, Scipio happened to be one of those companies that we were going to white label the tool with. And Jin kind of had an in there 
for us uh, to help us uh, acquire that business very early on. So they're early adopters of that product and we were building it around them and it was going really well. And I was watching them sell it to their clients and uh, you know, their CEO who had, you know, freshly come on board there as well approached me and said, why don't we join forces? Like, let's build a deck of corn instead of two unicorns. And it seemed like a really good idea. I really love working with them. And, you know, the thing about startups is, you know, how often do you have a chance to get acquired by people you actually like? Um, mm. And with a product that just made sense where you've already had a chance to work with them and know that it's going to go well. And so it was a really hard decision to determine whether or not we should do it. But I really felt like it was the best thing for the company. They already had a really great data science team. And over the last nine months since that acquisition, I can tell you like the work that we have done on the product itself, which is now the flagship product at Scipio, um, has really come to all the things that I wanted it to be, you know, over the last four years, because we now have that data science team, we have a design team that can make it look beautiful and a product team and a, you know, amazing engineering team, as well as a sales team where we've been able to acquire, you know, a lot of clients in the health and fitness space, like World Gym, Crunch Fitness, Orange Theory, and Resort Pass, right? And so it's just everything is kind of firing on all cylinders now. So it's great. Wow. Well, congratulations. It is indeed uh, quite rare to to see the um, very successful acquisition uh, or merger of, you know, of, of the two teams. Yeah. Um, that is working incredibly well for all of the leadership and supposedly for, for all of the rest of the team that joined. Yeah. How was, what was the size of the team uh, nine months ago when you've uh, taken a decision to, to join forces with uh, CBO? Yeah, so we were about 10 people and I believe CBO had about 20-ish. So we came, we came together about at like 30 roughly uh, together. And today we're, you know, roughly around like 36, 37 folks. Um, in the organization. So we've maintained being pretty small and scrappy. Um, uh, most of our team is in uh, India and in Ahmedabad. We actually have an office that we share with the portfolio uh, of other companies from our parent, um, you know, lead investor of DX Factor. And then we have our headquarters in Virginia too. So we were lucky to be able to bring everyone from Kindu was offered a, a spot there. And most of them are still here in the organization. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we also have this incredible team that we joined. So it was really um, mm. quite awesome for us to have that opportunity. Superb. Yeah, superb. Um, how did you find uh, the the product essentially growth trajectory changing um, since um, uh, since you've joined the forces? Do you, I'm sure you're tracking that, but do you, do you have a specific kind of percentage point of uh, sales growth or, uh, you know, you see that users are more satisfied with the product because of, you know, the, the resources um, uh, that are now within the team, the data science team, the, the design team that are making the product um, better every day? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, well, we do a, a net promoter score and we're actually, today I was just reviewing it with our product manager and going through it with him. And we were really excited that we've jumped even 20% um, over the last quarter uh, so far um, with what we originally set out mm -hmm. for in uh, January. So we're really excited about that. And I think mm -hmm. where a lot of those, you know, um, why people are so satisfied with, 
the product right now is a lot to do with the merging of the two teams. I mean, we come with a lot of domain knowledge into this space mm -hmm. around what was working in our product before that we've kept and then what we wanted to enhance on it that the team could provide and bring to us. Um, and I think, you know, for us, for me, it was a very watershed moment in March of this year when we, you know, had the, some of the first tools that were not built into Kindu that were now being built in Scipio. Everything else mm -hmm. was already from Kindu was already here and merged and working. And it was really exciting to see some of that growth. So some of those things are, for example, we're utilizing AI and ML to basically really enhance the real relevant and reachable audience for the, the user base with an image to image search. So we're the only image mm -hmm. to image search where you can like literally load a picture and we'll show you a bunch of influencers uh, that are already producing content that is very similar to what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, that was a really big um, moment where I think our usability shot up, um, not only just from our current users, but just like for the market in general, this is the thing that's been missing for a lot of folks. So we see people um, literally when we show the product, they go, wow. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. as a product owner, as the chief product officer, I don't think there's a better reaction that you could uh, have from people when they, when you see them see your product for the first time, it's, it's very satisfying. Um, and so we get probably 90% wow on the first time that people see it. And we actually like kind of measure uh, the reactions mm -hmm. of, of that magical moment that we're looking for. And then we really try to carry that through the entire process. We've got some things coming out um, the next few months that we think will really wow people again as they're building and creating their own content as a brand and also helping creators create better content that um, actually enhances how it performs in the market as well. And we're really excited to, you know, surprise and delight people. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, in, indeed, it's um, it's a most rewarding kind of an experience where you see the effort of your work mm -hmm. being sort of reflected on somebody else's life um, and satisfaction with you know with what they do. Um, so that's important uh, as well. Uh, and so the product, what platforms are you currently looking at? Uh, Instagram, of course, uh, are you working with TikTok? Um, what are the main platforms that you're targeting and what's on the horizon for, for your team to, to target later yep, on? So we already have both Instagram and TikTok integrated into the platforms. We have scoring models on YouTube as well. We've had those since can do days. Uh, we just find that most uh, brands where they can afford to and want to advertise um, is mm -hmm. in the first two, you know. Um, we also mm -hmm. are looking at Twitter. We do uh, have the data API already built in to pull in. Uh, but again, like one thing we've measured is that Twitter is very interesting from like a brand to brand mm -hmm. standpoint. And as we think about maybe doing more B2B influencer that, you know, is on the horizon. Um, we're also incredibly interested in Web3. And so we're also have been um, integrating and some of like the different like coin, you know, solutions that we are looking at right now. And um, that's a big project that we're undertaking currently to really vet the product market fit. And if there's a true need for, you know, we don't want to build Web3 just to build Web3. Um, but we actually see a lot of potential use cases for influencers to have more ownership in what they're doing, civilians to actually participate in the economy of the products that they love and want to, mm -hmm. you know, 
they use every day and want to promote um, to win. And then brands to ultimately really build brand communities. And so, um, you know, that's another big factor of like some of the elements that we're looking at right now too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things, you know, that you've, that you've mentioned, uh, before is that, um, one of the most kind of the, the, the aspects that you're proud of is going more from a business side to, um, of an organization to more of a technical side of the organization. How did the, the journey go for you there? What, you know, what was the reason for you to, uh, to finally dip the toes into the technical side? Yeah. You know, and I'd have to like go way back, right. For that piece, because, um, I think that, you know, one thing I've been drawn to, smaller companies or startups really since I almost, since I left Quicken loans, you know, what feels like a hundred years ago now. Um, but when you work in a smaller organization, you don't always have a product person, right? Or there are lots of different hats you have to wear, especially when you are tasked with managing revenue and results there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times if that thing doesn't exist, you've got to get scrappy and figure out how to kind of build it and cobble that stuff together yourself. And so originally, you know, what I found is I would ask developers for help building things. And, you know, they say like, are you really going to use that? Can you go build something and like, show me you actually have a need for it. And I think they would say that thinking I would just go away and not come back to them. Uh, but I would <laughs> actually go and cobble something together, whether that was in an Excel sheet or a Google form or, you know, really prove a use case out. Um, and I think Google was my best friend in figuring out how to, you know, quickly HTML something together. So I at least had a front end. And I, what I found is that developers respected that a lot and said, okay, wow, you're going to actually take the time and effort to do that. Let me come help you. Let's take extra time together and let's build mm -hmm. this thing together. And so it started off with just like a lot of side projects that, you know, ultimately were driving results for the team. Um, and, you know, then uh, later companies, you know, again, we didn't have a product person at Movoto when I built the agent app there. Um, and that was just because we just didn't have that person on the team at the company. We had a lot of engineers and we had some designers. And so as the product owner, you know, and it was really like my idea that we wanted to move these agents off of text to an app like I had to run the the concepts of like, this is what the epic's going to look like. These are the story points. This is how I want them to use it. And um, so it really became very organic. And then um, as I started to enjoy it more and more, I said, okay, well, how can I better myself to actually be able to have those technical chops? So I started taking courses at places like General Assembly. You know, I learned how to like code through Code, code Academy a little bit. Um, and then later have mm -hmm. taken, you know, more formal classes on coding and whatnot and have learned things like, you know, I'm probably like beginner intermediate stage with like Python. Like no one's going to pay me to do the coding by any means, but it allows me to be dangerous enough to have a concept of how long something should take to build or hmm. understand the challenges a developer may see with this piece and respect all the work they're doing to not ask for things that are not important to the team that are not going to get used. Indeed, that's, that's very true. The, um, the collaboration generally between product engineering teams should be very tight and it's tough to collaborate, um, and come to certain, you know, understanding if you don't have an awareness of what exactly the team is going through. Yeah. And I think a lot of times business people, 
Um, you know, we are stuck in our silos of like the leads that come in are good today because I yeah. sold the deal and they're bad tomorrow if I didn't get any sales. Right. And so I think that by expanding my view of the work that they do and getting that respect, I was able to make that transition and then earn the respect of the engineers and product team members that I was working with. And eventually, obviously, once you become a founder, you are the product owner, right? And so that definitely immersed me into it. And then I think for Sandeep, when, you know, he was acquiring the company for him, it was like a no brainer of, I want you to, you're the domain expert, you're the product owner, you know, everything about this, you, mm. this is going to be your role in our company. And uh, to me, it was actually more exciting. I actually think I'd rather be chief product officer than CEO in this town. You know, it's a uh, more exciting, you get to see the actual physical result yeah. versus spending all your time trying to get investors to give you money. You know, it's a much more fun job. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, it's lead, leading perhaps to, uh, to that. And I know that you mentioned the, um, the, the raising from the, from the VCs before. So you, you mentioned, uh, essentially uh, that one of the challenges that you faced, uh, along the way being, uh, was being essentially a solo non-technical yes. female founder and getting the funding from VCs. So it's a tough experience for any gender, but, um, would you be open to sharing your experience in that? Yeah. You know, I think that being a female founder, we're only going to get 2% of all the funding that's out there to begin with right now. And, uh, you know, there are, you know, you have to try to get every dollar you can, you know, and the opportunity. Um, when it came to being a non-technical founder, there's a lot of VCs that just won't even talk to you if you're a solo non-technical founder. Um, and I was really lucky to be able to establish great relationships um, with some investors, including 500 startups, where um, I think that after I could show them, like, look at this is what I have already built with the engineering team yeah. and the advisors that I've you know, brought in around me and showing them that I could hire the talent was really helpful to, I think, them taking that chance on me and they could see the early work. I will tell you that 100%, I know that me making them actually see the product I built versus just telling them about the product I was building mm -hmm. uh, definitely probably made the difference. And so, um, and keeping in touch early and often with folks, I think went a long way because I think in the world of investors, you know, um, they want to see execution. I think that's really important to them uh, because that shows that you're moving forward. And so if you can tell them like, Hey, this is what I'm going to accomplish this month and this quarter. And then you send the update of like, well, we accomplished it. You know, that's going to wow them. That's going to be the reason they're going to take the next call and have the conversation. And you really have to think about this as a journey. And I think that unfortunately under, you know, estimated or underrepresented founders um, will have probably a longer journey on it, but it's worth it. I think in the end, because you will raise money, you will find the people that you really want to be your investors uh, to begin with and who believe in you, who have been there all along and helping you. And, you know, when they come in, it's going to feel more rewarding than maybe it would have. There was also investors who I thought I really did want their money from, and I did want their advice and their help. But after like working with them for a little bit, I realized they weren't the right fit. So it was almost like a better opportunity that I missed the opportunity or they passed, uh, then, you know, if not, because as you kind of get to know people, 
you and you're getting more and more experience with the fundraising, you realize just how important the investors are to you when they can give you solid advice where they understand what your vision and your product is versus, you know, like you can get money anywhere. And I know that that sounds crazy when you say fundraising is hard, but there's a lot of capital out there. If you take the time to find it, you will find it. Um, but finding the quality capital that you really want to be in, that's where the work has to take place. Yeah, absolutely. There is uh, also a really great uh, research paper published last summer, actually, um, from Forward Partners, speaking about the lack of the operational support from the investors, and that indeed the capital with capability is what um, the founders are looking for, rather than uh, you know just just the funds. Yeah. Because. Um, it's it's a it's a very different approach to to take especially for some funds knowing that they haven't had necessarily the same kind of structure and their you know their their teams are their team size is locked for you know for whatever will be the the lifetime of the fund that they're raising yeah so it's difficult to to hedge um on the go uh, with limited budgets um as well for them absolutely well. and i think it's also because you know I really believe that most investors, they want to help and they want to give you the advice or the resources mm -hmm. they have access to. But every business is so unique and every founder is so unique that it's got to be incredibly difficult to know, you know, is this a place to insert myself or will I be hindering mm -hmm. this founder's vision? You know, uh, when they, I mean, you really have to trust that these folks have uh, a strong vision that they're going to take the ball where they want to go and you're getting behind them and how can you help level them up, um, I think is really key as an investor. But at the same time, you want to, um, you know, you need, the founders need to be able to ask for help too, right? Investors aren't mind readers. Yeah. So I think a lot of times when I hear people complain that their investors weren't helpful to them, I'm like, well, what, what did, tasks did you give them that they didn't help you with? And a lot of times they're, well, I haven't actually talked to them. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, what do you want them to do? Right. So um, you have to be ready with those asks. They have to be meaningful. And you really need to be thinking about like where your investor strengths are going to be before you even bring them in. So you can leverage them. And I think anyone who's on the team should have a, a role in a place of like how they're, why you're bringing them in and what they're going to bring to you other than money. And that includes every person who's in the startup, right? Who works there, an investor, your advisors, anyone should be playing a, a role that is helpful. Yeah, very true. It's uh, it's essentially due diligence both ways, yes. right? Yeah. Um, brilliant. Um, so uh, we've, we've touched upon the point, of course, of the uh, females females being underrepresented within the product engineering community. What are your thoughts on uh, essentially some of the successful strategies to adopt to equalize the gender split in, in the space in product engineering? Yeah, you know, I think a big part of it is like this starts at the top, right, of any organization. And I think that if, you know, top leadership executive teams do not take the, you know, diversity and inclusiveness seriously to the point where they're saying like, I want to see 50% of these resumes that come in. I want to see them be female, people of color, people with different backgrounds, then we're not going to get anywhere. Right. I mean, I think there's a really great study that was done where the AI was picking the resumes 
uh, for engineers and it only picked white male engineers. Right. And again, that's partly because there's inherent bias in how it was built. Right. The AI is only doing what it was told to do. Um, and so I think that we have to make that knowledgeable effort to say, like, what faces am I missing on this team? Like, what experiences are not here? And maybe that is like, oh, I don't have anyone who, you know, maybe is differently abled or I don't have anyone from the LGBTQ community to that could provide insight. And I think a lot of times brands are like, well, my company doesn't have anything to do with LGBTQ. Why would their opinion matter uh, any differently than some other engineer or, or product person? And it's like lived experiences are, uh, that are different, you know, really provide a better you know, cauldron for you to draw from and see things that are very unique. Even if you think about um, a lot of times, for example, I live here in San Francisco, you know, there's a real big bias of like, hey, this is the only place you can hire engineers or, or product people, right? Which is like, that's wild to think that. I mean, there's plenty of talent and smart, incredibly capable people all over this country. And just because somebody comes from like the middle of nowhere, Iowa, does not mean they would not be an incredible resource. As a matter of fact, they might have a totally different insight on how someone's going to adapt to your product because they are used to talking to people who are maybe not as technically savvy as all of our first adopters here are. And so I think like if the top-down leadership demands it from the recruiters, they demand it in terms of how many people will get interviewed. And then they almost do like a side-by-side -side comparison and, you know, my old CEO, Ed Forst, at RealtyShare said, when all things are equal, choose diversity. And I believe that uh, to my core as like an important thing. And I really try to implement it with our own team and um, anyone I talk to and share. But I think it starts there of like, let's see the resumes. Let's do the side-by-side -side comparisons. And that's not to say we shouldn't hire, you know, cisgendered white males anymore. We absolutely should. They're just as important in the mix but it shouldn't be the only voices that are there. Yeah, um, if, if I may add here as well, uh, the, important, uh, the important step perhaps is to clarify what exactly we're looking for from the very start, because um, everybody has bias, it's, it's yeah. the fact, right? So let's just uh, take it as a face value. The, the way, if, if we're able to sort of distill the kind of competencies, the specialist skills that we're looking for early at the beginning, before even starting the search or as any in-house or agency or search firm recruiter, um, we're then, you know, keeping our mind completely set on that specific profile. Because what sometimes happens, and I'm, yeah. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it always happens, but um, you're less prone to to bias, uh, you know, to your to your comments, right, with regards to what specifically you might like or not like about the specific person. If you again go back to that scorecard, which is the methodology that I'm using, you know, yeah. to sort of keep us uh, laser sharp on the exact profile with, you know, without any gender uh, specifics in mind. Once you, you know, once you kind of at the selection point, you're always able to uh, go back and check with that specific scorecard and not, you know, remove all of the excuses that you might want to make about the person because, you know, they're different to you. Um, and oftentimes for the founders, it's a surprise because they're always referring so that they're relying a little bit more on the referrals 
but guess who, who are you going to refer, wow. right? People who are very similar to you. So that does not help our diversity target. So uh, in order to reach the different results, we really have to do the things very differently and keep you know, the, the, the base parameters for the role very, very clear Absolutely. from the start to sort of remove this, this uh, dependency on, you know, very personal judgment um, about a person A or person B. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it speaks volumes you know, anecdotally that, you know, for example, I've worked with a Indian CTO and 90% of the engineers on the team were Indian. I worked with a Chinese CTO, a hundred percent were <laughs> Chinese. I worked with a Russian CTO, uh, 90% were Russian. Right. And so like, when you look at like how there's clear bias happening, you know, in that place, I think it's really the executive team's job to say, wait a minute, like, and I understand that's like, not okay. You know, we've uh -huh. got an in, we've got connections, we've got a, a group, but how could we enhance this if we, you know, look outside of these, these walls here that we're currently in right now, which is great. We've got a pool, you know, if we can't find anyone, we'll, we'll go here. But I firmly believe there's an entire 7 billion people on this planet. We can find the right people for sure that meet all the criteria, yeah. especially in yeah, especially in the past two years when everybody's working remotely, it's it's easier than than ever before to to just build uh, remote first international teams at least, you know. Absolutely. And um, in, inevitably, you're increasing your pool as well of of individuals that you could consider that are you know female or from LGBT community. Absolutely. So um, that that does help the. Yeah, we actually Jen and I had only ever met in person three times prior to the pandemic, right? And uh, our CMO <laughs> at Kindu, I had worked with previously at another organization. So her and I had met, but the other nine people on our team, we never met until post acquisition. And there are still people yeah. who have worked with us at Kindu that I have never met. And uh, people, of course, our team in India is our, you know, dev team is mainly in India now. So I haven't met a lot of the engineers, uh, because, you know, the pandemic, we haven't gone there yet, right? Um, but, you know, we're planning on going out later this year and hopefully we'll get to meet them all in person. But, you know, remote work, I think, has also allowed a lot of real focus to happen for product and engineering teams. Um, I think mm -hmm. for us at Kindu, we definitely thrived because there wasn't a lot of in-office distractions or extra meetings. It was a lot of time to get the work done. Um, and we would have, you know, one or two hour meetings you know, throughout the whole week versus it being, you know, two or three hours a day that I find in a lot of previous life organizations. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, equally a supporter of remote. I think it helps um, everybody in every single situation mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, you know, working on a remote basis from the location that you want to work from uh, to, you know, accommodating to your life choices or life circumstances. Especially in like highly skilled roles like engineering or product where people generally have, you know, years of experience in their career under the belt and they know what they want to be doing. Um, I do worry about remote work for younger workers who don't have the training or development that might, they might need hands-on or that, mm. uh, and also somewhat introverted folks who maybe are not going to get seen as often as they would if they were in office, you know? And so I think, again, that's the work of the executive team to make sure that everyone is, 
getting the training plan that they need. Uh, there's a lot of great tools out there for that. And then also that they are having those skip level meetings uh, to make sure they're, you know, getting to hear all of those voices that may not be, you know, um, you know, at the, the meetings they're attending on a regular basis. Mm, that's that's a really great point. Um, I feel that um, uh, developer relations um, sort of a role is, is partially the outcome uh, of, you know, of realizing uh, that there could be a gap for um, for more junior developers uh, or generally a community feel, yeah. you know, across the, the larger development teams. So that's a good that's a good note for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps to, to our last kind of a question, um, if you were, uh, you know, if you were to go back uh, about 15 years ago to the start of your career or to the start of your um, more of a technical uh, career track and give yourself uh, three key pieces of advice, what would those be? Learn to code sooner and learn to code, right? Like, without a doubt, um, mainly not necessarily because I think it would have been easier to fundraise or to build my own thing uh, sooner, but more so because I think it's such a valuable tool. Like right now I'm like, you know, I have a lot of people have like kids in their in my life now. And so like any gift I give is like a STEM gift. Right. And I just think like learning to code early and often and get in there and figure that out is probably the biggest one. The second piece of advice would be take better care of yourself. Like work will be there tomorrow. Um, I just think that I've never been really great at overall self-care. And I think it's harder as you become a founder and you get up in the ranks, you always think, okay, this thing's going to happen. I'm going to have more time. Like you will never have more time. So uh, you're never going to be younger and healthier than you are right now in this very moment. Uh, and so start whatever you want to do right this second. And then the last piece um, of advice I would say was also, you know, take more time for your friends and family. Um, I am, I love to work. I run to work every single day, but as I start looking at like my parents were aging and whatnot, like I definitely am like, man, you know, I should really take more time to spend with them. And I'm starting to do more of that now, but I think like, wouldn't have been better if I had done that over the last 20 years too. So it's a little bit of, bit of like your professional and also like personal that I think I would give my younger self the advice on. Yeah, balancing is indeed very tough. Yeah. Uh, it's it's also um, a lot of individuals who have entrepreneurial spirit, whatever they're founder or not founder. It's difficult to stop, right? It's difficult to stop working, especially when you really like what you do. Um, so guilty of that myself. Yeah, <laughs> so you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone in the room as well. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, Kelly, this had been an amazing conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, meeting you. So thank you so much for, for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me and for reaching out. I uh, had a great time and I would love to uh, chat with you again sometime. Absolutely. I look forward to speaking again sometime in the future. Perfect. Have a great day.